Hello to my lovely listeners, and welcome to episode two of Thinking Critically. I'm your host, Chaz Anderson, and I'm really excited to be doing this, and hope plenty of you join me on the ride. Okay. So, in this episode, I wasn't able to get a guest lined up quite yet to do one of the interviews that I would like to be the center of the show. So instead, I am going to give you guys my thoughts on a topic that I'm really interested in and passionate about, but I don't necessarily think I'm going to find a good conversation partner in the near future for. So today, I would like to spend some time talking to you guys about uh, the criminal justice system in the United States and the issues I have with it and things that I think could be done in other systems I think we could model that would be uh, beneficial. Okay, so I would like to start out by just going over a couple statistics with you. Uh, in the United States, there are currently about 2.3 million people in correctional facilities, including state and federal prisons and some other legally mandated halfway houses and things like that. Uh, Five-year recidivism rates in the United States are insanely high compared to the rest of the world and in case you're not aware recidivism rates are uh, how often are people released from prison committing more crimes and being reincarcerated in three to five years after being released initially so in the United States uh, in state prisons which is where the majority of our incarcerated population is held uh, in on average in within three years of being released 67 almost 68 percent of all prisoners released end up committing more crimes and being re-incarcerated and uh, over a five-year period that number goes up to 76.6 almost 77 so what that says to me is that Number one, our criminal justice system is just not doing a good job of what criminal justice systems are supposed to do, which is to uh, act as a deterrent against people who would like to commit crimes or might feel they need to commit crimes, as well as being able to rehabilitate people who do commit crimes so that they can become a productive member of society without us having to worry that they are going to continue to commit crimes in the future. The recidivism rates being as high as they are show that our current criminal justice system is doing almost nothing to maintain either one of those goals at all. And the fact that it rises from three years to five years leads me to believe that life on the outside, once you get released from prison, life doesn't get substantially easier the longer you're back in society. In other words, 68% have enough trouble trying to reintegrate into society after three years that they end up committing more crimes and being locked up again, and the fact that that number jumps by almost a full 10%, in the two years following that leads me to believe that more time 
back in society doesn't necessarily mean that the quality of your life once you've re-entered is going to improve. Uh, which I think is the first and probably most significant issue with the American criminal justice system is just that it does not do a good job of rehabilitating these people and deterring people from committing crimes. Uh, additionally, the United States incarcerates far more people, both in terms of sheer number and as a percentage of our population than any other country on earth. I've got another statistic I'd like to read off for you that kind of speaks to that. Uh, the United States only accounts for about 5% of the world population right now, but we house 25% of all of the incarcerated persons in the, in the world. So that means we are incarcerating five times as many people as we should be based on our population. If you assume that you averaged all the incarceration rates across the globe and you'd have something like a rough estimate of what a good number would be. So, next I'd like to talk about, outline another problem that I see, which is that the number of people being incarcerated for drug offenses and nonviolent offenses is unsustainable. I mean, I think the point of a criminal justice system should be to rehabilitate people who end up in a place in their lives where they feel like they need to commit a crime, and also as some measure of, I don't want to say punishment because I don't think that's the correct term, but just serve as a way for people to be forced to contend with the wrong they have done. And as far as I'm concerned, if your if if your only offense or your most serious offense was simply doing possessing or selling or manufacturing drugs, I don't necessarily think that you qualify in those categories like for example I would consider nonviolent drug offenses to be victimless crimes because it's always only a consensual agreement between two adults there's no violence being imparted on anybody nobody is being made to do something against their will or having something taken from them against their will it's just an exchange of goods and whether you think the goods that are being exchanged are beneficial to the people who want them or to the society as a whole doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing something wrong in the way I'm talking about here. And so I'll just run down some of these numbers for you. Uh, there are 1.3 million people in state prisons at any given time. And of that, 197,000-ish, around a little over 15% of the total population of people in state prisons are there, with their most serious crime being either possession or manufacture and sale of drugs. That works out to be about 45,000 people, uh, or 
who are in prison with their most serious offense being possession of drugs. And that's insanity to me because that means that we are locking people in cages for extended periods of time and exposing them to conditions that most people couldn't even really fathom for doing nothing other than just having drugs on them. And that's crazy to me. I mean, that's the kind of thing I could see you, like, demanding for people who are walking around with baggies of anthrax in their pockets. But if you can honestly look me in the face and say that you think simply possessing marijuana or cocaine or LSD or mushrooms or meth or heroin or any of these drugs, just the act of possessing them should qualify you to be locked in a cage at the point of a gun, then I don't understand how you're thinking about this. And hopefully, if I can find somebody who who feels that way and is willing to come on and try to explain it to me, we can have that conversation because I don't get it. Uh, and then the other roughly 12% are, or 152,000 people are in prison for manufacturer sale of drugs, which again, I don't fully understand because there are, and this is a pretty exhausted argument here, but there are substances that are way more dangerous for you and have a more delirious effect on society that are perfectly legal to produce and sell and possess and take. But for some reason this one class of substances that all basically just do something like what we have legal drugs to do just possessing, manufacturing, or selling those things to people who want them is a federal offense that can get you locked in prison. That's... I don't understand that. And then around, you know, the remaining prison population would be contained in federal prisons, and that's roughly a million people in the United States. And of that number, over 50%, almost 52% of all federal prisoners, which works out to be half a million people almost, are in prison with their most serious offense being trafficking and manufacturing and drugs, which again, as I talked about, and I can probably get more into that, and I'm sure I will on some other episodes, because I do have some people who would like to come in and talk to me about drugs and their experience with them and what we think about them, but uh, Just as, like, a personal philosophy, I can't really wrap my head around the idea of making illegal something that somebody just enjoys to do themselves. Skydiving has massive hazardous uh, consequences if things go wrong. Drinking has massive hazardous consequences to you, your family, your society, and everything you're connected to if you abuse it for long periods of time. I mean, there are just, there are so many activities that people only do because they take pleasure in them, 
and have these negative effects to themselves, but none of those are outlawed, and I just don't really understand why these drugs get this special significant categorization. I do think, I feel like I need to make the point that there are certain circumstances in which I would say that the use and abuse of some of these drugs should be outlawed and punishable. I don't know if prison is the correct punishment for those offenses, but I do think they should be punishable. And if, obviously the goal being to rehabilitate you and get you to see the error in your ways so that you don't do it again. An example of that would be uh, if you are a parent or a guardian or a you work at a daycare or you're a teacher or something like that and you are directly responsible for children or the handicapped and you have methamphetamine or heroin or cocaine or one of the more problematic drugs we are talking about here in your system, I think that should be outlawed based on the circumstances. Like if you, I don't care, in a perfect world, if you are a single person living in an apartment or a house or you and your significant other or whatever the circumstances might be, but it's just two consenting adults who decide that in their free time they would like to do meth or heroin or crack or whatever your drug of choice may be. I don't really care as long as you're not putting other people at risk. So if you get off a long week of work on a Friday night and you decide that the way you would like to spend your weekend is to buy $200 worth of meth with your significant other and then lock yourselves in the basement of your house and tweak out for three days, I don't care. That doesn't affect me. I don't think I should have any say over whether or not you do that. Again, as long as you're not putting people in harm's way. And that's where my stance on this comes from, is that I think when you have children or you are responsible for people who can't be responsible for themselves, then your right to do as you please in your free time is reduced by necessity. There are certain things you just can't do well, you are responsible for people who can't be responsible for themselves that you would be able to do otherwise. And we already have laws and regulations about that basic idea now that all these new substances could pretty easily just be applied to. But anyway, so that's my kind of shorthand personal philosophy on drugs. And hopefully that gives you a little bit of insight into why I think that these statistics are so out of control. Where you have, I mean, I'm just going to do a little quick mental math here. It's not going to be perfect, but roughly 30% of all prisoners in the United States had a most severe offense of manufacture, sale, or possession of drugs. And... Yeah, I don't know where else to go on that point. I've already given you my explanation of what I think, what my personal philosophy is on drugs and how I think that even if you think the use of these substances are sufficiently bad for society that we should 
take steps to prevent their use. I don't think locking people in cages, specifically in buildings where violence and drugs are the most heavily concentrated out of anywhere else on the planet, is a good way to go about doing that. Alright, uh, so now that we covered some of the statistics about the population of prisoners in the United States, and, uh, gone over a little bit of my issues with what these people are being incarcerated for, uh, let's talk about, let's talk about some of the issues inherent, I think, in our prison system that are going to be issues no matter how many people we incarcerate or what the scope of their crimes are. So I think in the United States, we have gone in the opposite direction of how you should run a criminal justice system. I think we have completely abandoned rehabilitation as the primary goal of being incarcerated. I think in the United States, at this point, we primarily look both societally as individuals and in terms of the power structure. I think we all view prison at this point and incarceration not as an opportunity to rehabilitate people who have gone down a bad path in their lives, but instead as a means to punish people who we feel deserve punishment. And I think that has had a lot of delirious effects on our criminal justice system as a whole, and I don't think it's an effective means to correct the problem of criminal behavior. So, one of the things I'd like to say about this is that when you move the focus away from rehabilitating people who have reached a rough patch in their life to punishing people that you have designated as bad or worse than you, I think one of the things that that does is it leads to a lot of apathy towards the people who are in those positions. So, for instance, if the societal conscious has decided that people who commit crimes and get convicted of crimes and get imprisoned are just being punished for the bad thing they've done, then I think people are far less likely to be concerned with how the prisoners are being treated because the goal isn't to put them in a place where they can be rehabilitated and become functioning members of society again. The understanding is that they are not functioning members of society, and so the only thing that's important is that they're being taken out of society and that they're being punished for the crimes they committed. And I think when a society has a view of criminal justice like that, it can cause a lot of problems, and some of those might be that the prison guards or prison administration or the people in charge of the prisons, and I think this is borne out by the experience of prisons in the United States, that the officials designated to the prison, the guards, the administration, everybody from the top down, also becomes very apathetic to the struggle of the prisoner and as a result is are probably less likely to do 
what would be necessary to improve the condition of the prisons and to improve the quality of life of the prisoners while they're there because when you get to a point where all you think of criminals in prisons as is a system of punishing bad people, there's no reason for you to be concerned about how the prisoners are being treated and so there's no reason for you to go out of your way, expend extra effort, or put yourself in harm's way in order to ensure that these people are being treated well and that their experience while they're imprisoned is sufficiently good. And I think, and again, I think the data probably bears this out. I don't have sources in front of me, but I could probably find some and add them to an addendum later on. Uh, I think when that happens and when the society starts viewing things that way, that the prison guards and the prison administration become more apathetic to the prisoners and the conditions they're living in. And because of that, conditions in the prisons deteriorate, and they become more violent, and they become more tribal, you could say. And I think, again, that's probably borne out by the evidence of self-reports from people who enter prisons for relatively low-level offenses, nonviolent, drug-related crimes, things like that, uh, who don't have any known affiliation with any violent organizations who, when they enter the prison system, feel that the only way that they can survive while they're there is to join a gang usually racially affiliated. And I think that follows logically, because if the, if the general consensus in the society is that these criminals are just bad people and it doesn't matter what happens to them as long as they're taken out of the population and punished, and that bleeds into the prison administration and guards, who then are less likely to do anything about the bad conditions and the, the violence and, and things of that nature, then I think that... Uh, the prisoners who are genuinely just... I don't know that bad people is necessarily the right term, but have gone down the bad path sufficiently far enough that they might actually be beyond rehabilitation and are likely to exploit all of the other people who haven't reached that level are going to do so, and because of the way that we as a society view the prisoners, nobody really bats an eye when that happens, you know, like when when one prisoner will kill another one in the prison over a dispute or drugs or whatever gang affiliation, whatever it might be. I think the general feeling around that in the country is one of apathy, where it's, well, he was a criminal, he was a bad guy, he was in prison, he got mixed up with the wrong people, and this is what happens. And I think that has a snowball effect where then... If nobody is going to do anything to prevent that kind of violence from occurring, then the only real option is to find a group in which you can identify within to try to defend yourselves collectively against the others. It's what tribalism is. It's a incredibly deeply ingrained human 
tendency, I guess you could say. Uh, and so I think the move away from rehabilitation and towards punishment leads to a general sense of apathy about prisoners and prison and the conditions that they live in, uh, both societally and in terms of the power structure within. And I think that effect probably leads to the kinds of issues that we see in the prisons today. And that's a really big deal, because when prisons deteriorate into the condition they are now, and you have the incentives and forces pushing in the direction that they are pushing now, you can have somebody who ends up in prison never doing anything more serious than just selling pot to college kids on a campus who has no other criminal background, who has no gang affiliation, who has never done a violent deed in his life, who then gets to prison and feels that they have to affiliate with one of these gangs in order to keep themselves safe in what is obviously an unsafe environment. And by nature of what gangs are, being involved in that gang with those people who are, who do have a history of more serious crimes and violent offenses, you are going to end up doing things that you would never have otherwise done if it wasn't for the fact that you feel it's the only way you can survive in this environment. And so American prisons end up being like criminal universities where somebody goes in there a fairly non-threatening person who just wouldn't be likely to actually victimize anyone in their lives and then comes out after a five-year sentence now a hardened criminal who will commit violence against other people and will do these things that he feels like he needs to do that he learned to do in prison and will now take and apply when he re-enters society. And so that's just kind of like a little deep dive into why I think the issue of what we're trying to do with prisons and how we view prisons and prisoners is so important. Alright, you guys are going to have to bear with me a little bit here because, uh, again, this is only my second recording ever, and I'm not totally on top of how to organize my thoughts in my head in order to make the episodes really flow well yet. So after going through some of the things I have, I would also like to talk about some of the problems in how we... how we sentence people and apply the sentences. Uh, so I'm sure most of you at some point have actually heard of mandatory minimums. Uh, and those are the minimum possible sentence required for anyone regardless of circumstance who commits certain federal crimes. Uh, these mandatory minimums are set by Congress and not actually any judicial body 
Uh, most of the mandatory minimums in the United States right now apply to drug drug crimes, drug offenses. There are others, but the vast majority of them and the vast, vast majority of those that actually get implemented are involving drug crimes. Uh, so, for example, mandatory, so for, for an example of mandatory minimums that are drug crime related, if somebody gets caught selling 28 grams of crack cocaine, that is a mandatory minimum five years in prison. Regardless of circumstances, there is nothing to take into account. If you get caught selling 28 grams of crack, or even possessing 28 grams of crack, you are going to prison for five years. Uh, and it scales pretty significantly where if you are caught with 280 grams of crack trying to sell it, which obviously that is that is a lot of crack cocaine, and again, this is where some of the stigma around drugs comes into play, because I feel like if you are walking around trying to sell 280 grams of, coke, of crack, we probably need to do something with you. But again, as far as I'm concerned, as long as it's just two consenting adults doing a business transaction for all intents and purposes, and nobody's actually being victimized, I don't... I, I have trouble getting over the stigma because it's culturally ingrained, but at the same time, I understand that it doesn't really make any sense. But anyway, if you get caught trying to sell 280 grams of crack, or you have 280 grams of crack on you with the intent to sell, obviously, it's pretty unlikely you're going to find somebody who wants to buy 280 grams of crack in a single sitting. But anyway, if you get caught with 280 grams of crack and the intent to sell, you are doing 10 years in prison minimum, no matter what. Uh... And that's another issue that I see with the criminal justice system in the United States that kind of involves the mandatory minimums. Is there's... This is, a, this is a topic I'm kind of torn on. Because I understand that in order for a criminal justice system to be fair, it has to be pretty formal and uniform to ensure that people aren't letting personal biases and other things like that cloud their judgment and reflect in sentencing, which we still get a little bit of, but it's not that severe. Uh, and I understand why that would be necessary. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like there should be more flexibility and more context taken into account when we're sentencing people to actually reflect the intent of the crime. Uh, so, for example, let's take assault and battery. I don't believe there is, but if there was a mandatory minimum on assault and battery, which again is pretty unlikely because that would, it would have to be extreme for that to be considered a federal offense, but just walk with me on this hypothetical for a second, and if anybody thinks I'm being completely off base here, and I don't, what I'm saying isn't making sense, I'll have some contact information I release at the end of the show that you can get to me and email me and tell me what you think and if it's reasonable I can get you on the show and we can talk about it but um so for example if they had a mandatory minimum or something like that on assault and battery where if you got convicted to assault and battery in a certain degree you would have to serve at least X amount of years in prison, or days, or months, or whatever it might be, or years on probation, whatever the uh, punishment might actually be. 
that doesn't take it all into into account the circumstances that led to that situation. That means that as a society we are viewing somebody who with obvious malicious intent went out of their way to hurt someone who wasn't wasn't provoking them to just just go out and hurt somebody because they wanted to hurt somebody versus somebody who winds up through some set of circumstances that is out of their control in a situation in which things get very heated and in the heat of the moment uh, the the two parties come to blows and i think that you need to make a distinction there because intentions matter i don't think intentions matter more than the actions themselves. In other words, if we are going to have laws that their goal is to prohibit any kind of violent physical contact between people, then there should be some kind of... Again, I don't like the word punishment, but I'm having trouble coming up with a better, a better word for it. There should be some sort of penalty to both scenarios where somebody is going out with the specific malicious intent of hurting someone versus somebody who just gets caught up in the heat of the moment and two people end up fighting. I think if we're going to structure our society and set up laws to try to prohibit any kind of violent physical contact between people, then both things should have a penalty attached to them. But I think with things like mandatory minimums, you get to a place where there's no there's no wiggle room for things like that, where even though everybody who you talk to about that would say that, yes, obviously there's a difference, and yes, obviously one of them is worse than the other, and yes, obviously one of them is more dangerous, one person, one of those people is more dangerous than the other. But when you apply it to sentencing, it... All of that gray area goes away and suddenly these two people have to be judged as equal in terms of their offense. And I think that's a really serious problem. And that kind of brings me into another issue I have uh, with the criminal justice system in the United States. And that's uh, the use of federal sentencing guidelines. And I don't think that they're necessarily bad in and of themselves. But I think some of the ways they've been written and applied are problematic and again a lot of this is going to relate to drug crimes because I think that's the single biggest issue with the US prison system is that we're punishing nonviolent drug offenders by locking them in prison. Anyway, so in terms of federal sentencing guidelines, they're just used they're just guidelines set out uh, that are used by judges to adjust sentencing based on some extenuating circumstances. And I get that that kind of sounds like what I was just advocating for, but the issue is that the way that they're set up kind of intentionally lead judges to harsher sentences than might otherwise be necessary and pretty rarely ends up going in the opposite direction where uh, the, the extenuating circumstances lead to reduced sentences. So, for example, uh, 
the sale of more than 10 kilograms of marijuana. So let's say let's say you get busted trying to sell 14 kilograms of pot. Well, that has a certain... In the sentencing guidelines, that assigns you a certain bracket of what you should be sentenced for doing that. And then there are addendums added on to that for if you did this, increase by this amount, if you did this, increase by this amount, or if you did this, decrease by this amount. But the issue for me is that in cases like that, like selling 14 kilograms a pot, uh, some of the context that can lead to harsher prison sentences, as far as I'm concerned, are directly synonymous with committing that crime. Like, I think some of the things that they can increase your sentence for are things that you could not possibly be trying to sell 14 kilograms of marijuana if you weren't doing. Like, uh, if you are considered, if you can be classified as the leader or organizer of a group of people who are attempting to sell these, these drugs, then your sentence will be increased. But again, I don't, I, I think kind of inherently in trying to sell 14 kilograms of pot, you would have to involve other people. Because the likelihood of you individually knowing enough people who want to buy pot to burn through 14 kilograms of pot in the amount of time you'd need to to make money on it is just pretty far-fetched. Or another example relating to the same circumstances, they can increase your uh, your sentence if you have if you have a if you have a designated space to store or yeah, what you know, if you have a designated space to store the drugs. So like if you have a grow room or if you have a specific room where after you package it you you put it until it's ready to sell, they'll increase your sentence based on that. But again, I don't understand how you could possibly be trying to sell fourteen kilograms of weed and not have a place to store the weed when it's not being sold. And I take issue with that because I I don't think you should be able to increase somebody's sentencing for committing a crime based on things that are necessary to commit the crime. So I don't think you should be able to charge somebody with armed robbery and then after that fact increase the sentencing based on the fact that the person who committed armed robbery was armed. Like, okay, yeah, obviously the guy who committed armed robbery is armed because that's, you can't commit armed robbery without being armed. And just like this, I don't know that you can attempt to sell 14 kilograms of pot without having somewhere to store the pot until it gets sold. And so I think that that's kind of a symptomatic of the issues with the, with the prison system in the United States is that the... The incentives are so massively misaligned, I don't see how it could possibly be effective. I mean, you're, you're, you're setting up laws to lock up as many people, seemingly, as you can, and then you're setting up mandatory minimum sentencing and sentencing guidelines 
that almost inevitably make these people spend longer in prison than they would have otherwise. And it kind of even drips into corruption in politics, because then you end up having prison guard unions who lobby politicians with massive amounts of money to increase mandatory minimums and harshen federal sentencing guidelines and to ensure that uh, drugs don't become legalized because it's in the financial interest of the prison guards to keep more people in prison for longer. And it just, it's, it's, it's borderline unbelievable that something like that can happen in the United States, where you have entire groups of people who are kind of generally cons considered public servants who spend massive amounts of money lobbying against the best interests of the public. It's, I don't, it's, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's, it's tough to even wrap your head around the fact that something like that can happen legally in the United States. Uh, yeah, so to kind of touch on it a little bit more, the, the issues I see with that and how I think that has come to pass and gotten more severe is, uh, I don't really have a great way to contextualize this information right now, so I'm just going to give it to you and we'll see where it goes. So, for example, uh, California and Texas are the two states in the U.S. that have the highest imprisonment races, rates, and incarceration rates. And in California, the prison population has increased eightfold since the 70s. That means in the last 30 years, the prison population in California has gone from around 20,000 people to over 160,000 people locked up in prisons in California alone. And all of that can almost be causally related you can almost draw a clear line between the war on drugs and the crackdown on crime that was run as a platform from the 70s and the 80s to this massive influx of people being imprisoned and people being imprisoned for nonviolent offenses. And you can see a pretty clear connection between those two things and the change in how we view prisoners and prison between now and then. Uh, another little statistic would be that uh, the Texas prison population, the prison population in Texas, the, num the, the number of incarcerated people in Texas, just between the years of 1992 and 1997, more than doubled. Think about that. In a five-year period in Texas, the prison population more than doubled, and that means there were over 73 thousand new people locked in prison in Texas between 1992 and 1997. And those are numbers that have just continued to increase. Uh, so now I'll take a little bit and talk about the difference between how the U.S. does incarceration and criminal justice and how other countries, and I have one specific example I'm going to mostly base it off of, uh, 
do criminal justice. So I've given you a bunch of information about the United States and the prison system in the United States, and now I'm going to use Sweden as a mark of contrast. In Sweden, it is basically the official policy of the government that prison, the role of prison is not to punish people. The role of prison is to rehabilitate people while they are there. The punishment is just the fact of losing freedom while you're in prison. So to make that clearer, prison is not meant to be an environment that's so excruciating you're going to avoid committing crimes so you don't end up there. Prison in Sweden is meant to rehabilitate people who have ended up in that position but just the fact that they have to be in this rehabilitation center and can't leave is the punishment. And uh, to kind of reflect how that is, as far as I'm concerned, a better way to view it, uh, in the past 10 years, prison populations in Sweden have decreased from, 50, or from around 5,700 people to under 4,500 people in the last 10 years. Uh, the, recidiv the recidivism rate is almost half of the United States, where five-year recidivism in the United States was around 77%. In Sweden, recidivism rates are around 40% long-term. So what that means is not only is their system more humane, and as far as I'm concerned, focuses more on the correct aspects of criminal justice, which is rehabilitating the people who can be rehabilitated to get them to become functioning members of society again to where they won't commit more of these crimes. And again, I think the proof is just right there in the pudding for you that prison populations have been decreasing for the last 10 years in that country versus in the United States where they've been skyrocketing for almost 30, and the recidivism rate is nearly half of the U.S., which means that less people are committing crimes and the ones who do commit crimes are not usually recommitting when they get let out of prison which leads me to believe that the quality of life for the people who get released in sweden is so much higher than it is in the united states that they don't feel the need to commit another crime once they get out and there are a lot of interesting ways sweden does things that would lead to this result like uh for example, all prisons have, I mean, the guards in Swedish prisons are basically like licensed counselors as well, and they talk through these, talk through these things with these prisoners to try to figure out why they ended up in a position where they were committing the crime they were, and uh, one of the main goals is to educate the prisoners and uh, try to give them some sort of skill or knowledge that they can use to get a job and become productive when they get on the outside. Uh, I think another one of the ways that Sweden and Norway do it that's significantly better in the United States is that the uh, the stay for the, for the prisoners is not actually funded by the taxpayers. It's a state-run institution, but it's kind of run like a business where 
when the people get locked into prison and get these sentences, they are rehabilitated and they are given skills needed to have employment. And then the, the prisons and the government actually try to coordinate with businesses to secure these people employment before they exit the prison. And then once they are released, they are basically handed a bill for how much it costs to house them in the prison for the time they were locked up. And they have a requirement to pay that money back to the government so that they aren't on top of committing a crime leeching off of the taxpayers as well. Uh, and I think all of that is really important to the way that they do criminal justice because my personal philosophy on that is that for most people who end up committing crimes, it's not because they're bad people and it's not because anything like that. It's, it's, it's because they reached a point in their life where they felt like they didn't have any other options. And so I think one of the main ways you fight crime is to structure your society in a way that as few people as possible feel like they have no other option and that people's lives are sufficiently good that they won't be willing to risk the the loss of freedom that would come with with committing these crimes so like for example if you're if you have a really good functional healthy relationship with your family and you have a good group of friends around you that you're close to and you have a you have a good enough job that you can you can pay all your bills and you can take care of your family the odds of you committing crimes that would end you locked up in prison is almost zero because that would mean you were going to lose all of those things you had I think a lot of the people who commit crimes feel isolated and feel like they don't have any other options and that they don't really have much to lose. And so I think a prison system where you just lock these people in cages for, I mean, even decades at a time without doing anything to rehabilitate them or get them ready to re-enter society, and then you also strap this massive stigma that there is in the United States about people who have been incarcerated and you bundle all of that up and then you kick them out into a world that's changed so dramatically even in the last five years they're they're completely isolated they have almost no employment opportunities because they have no skills and they're massively stigmatized and they end up falling back into the the crowds and the scenes they were in before because that's the only way they know and you've done nothing to give them a base to build off of and i think that's why they there's such a high rate of recidivism why these people end up going right back to crime when they get out uh and so for example prison uh sweden has started this this concept of open prisons where uh prisoners aren't aren't stigmatized or made to feel different people who have committed crimes they they are free to come and go within reason and commute to work and visit family and things like that. And when they leave the prison, they are electronically monitored to make sure that they are where they say they were going to go and that they are doing what they said they were going to do. But that kind of keeps them in touch with the community and uh, keeps their life moving. 
because I think one of the big issues with long prison sentences is that that just becomes your world. And so I think you get you get so accustomed to that kind of life because that's the only thing you have that you end up coming out a radically different person than you were when you went in. And I think this would help prevent some of that because you can stay connected with the community, you can stay connected with your family, you can you can get and keep a job while you're there so that you have some you have some positive beneficial things in your life that you can try to work on and focus on and because you are imprisoned and you don't have the same options both good and bad as people that are on the outside it kind of forces you to spend more time and energy focusing on those beneficial things that you still have and could actually strengthen your bond with the community and with the society and put you in a place even while you're still in prison where you are less likely to commit more crimes moving forward because you feel more connected to the beneficial parts of society and you see more of an opportunity for yourself to improve later. And I think something like that would be really difficult to implement in the United States just because there is so much stigma around people who are incarcerated that I don't think you could get most people to sign on to something like that because they would just believe that these are crazed bad men who as soon as they're given the opportunity to leave the prison would just go out and commit more crimes before they had to go back which for the most part I don't think is true Okay, there's one more topic I'm going to talk about here, and it'll probably be another 10, 15 minutes, maybe 20, we'll see how it goes, and then I'm going to cut the episode off. There are more things I'd like to talk about on this subject, but I don't want my second episode of the podcast to go so long that people can't stomach listening to the whole thing. Uh, and so I'm going to finish by talking about one other example of a foreign country who I think is doing things almost remarkably better than the United States in terms of criminal justice and specifically drug-related issues. And that's Portugal. And I don't know if any of my listeners are aware, but Portugal in the 90s had one of the worst heroin ep epidemics in the entire world. Uh, people were overdosing in mass, and drug and diseases like AIDS and hepatitis were being transmitted like wildfire because of the the rampant use of heroin and the sharing of needles and things like that. But instead of taking the U.S.'s flawed path and cracking down in draconian ways on people who are doing these drugs, they focused instead on trying to figure out why people were resorting to these drugs and how they could be rehabilitated to where they wouldn't continue doing it as well as programs like providing clean needles whenever needed so that you could so that they wouldn't be as likely to share and spread disease but uh the basis for this policy change was uh a scientific experiment done 
by a Canadian psychologist called Rat Park. And I don't have all of the numbers and exact dates and things in front of me at the moment, but I'm just going to give you a general rundown of what it was. So when they were studying the addictive properties of drugs back in like the 60s, maybe even 50s, uh, there was a noted psychologist in the United States who did a study where he took rats in cages and gave them one water bottle that was just water and one water bottle that was water laced with cocaine. And the rats almost universally would get a taste for the water laced with cocaine and then proceed to, over the next couple days, drink it until they died, overdosed, or whatever the issue might have been. Uh, and because of this, they concluded from that study that these drugs were so relentlessly addictive just in their chemical makeup that nobody could be reasonably expected to use them responsibly. That it would, anyone who used them would get so hopelessly addicted that it would spiral their life irrevocably. Uh, and then this Canadian psychologist in the 70s or 80s, uh, decided that he was going to do the same experiment, but kind of tweak it. Uh, he noticed an issue with the way in which that they were conducting the experiment in the first example, and that was that uh, these rats were isolated and they were kept in small cages and dimly lit rooms and just kind of a, a generally depressing state of life for any conscious creature. And so he changed it by, uh, he had... The control group, which was like in the first study, just rats kept in their normal laboratory conditions. And then a second uh, set of rats that were kept in this gigantic sprawling cage he called Rat Park. And the idea was that there were lots of other rats of both sexes that could uh, intermingle and communicate and, and have sex. And there were exercise facilities and amenities that a rat would enjoy. Uh, and then he introduced, again, regular water bottles and water bottles laced with cocaine. And for the most part, the rats would just completely ignore the water laced with cocaine in favor of the regular water. And the conclusion to this study was that it isn't just that the chemical substance is addictive, but that the people who become addicted, and in this case the rats, are doing so because they need an escape from their reality. Because their reality is so harsh and depressing that the euphoria they feel from this chemical substance is a sufficient enough upgrade from their regular daily lives that it becomes almost unbearable to go back to the drain of life without the chemical. And they backed up these findings even further by taking rats in the first sample who were addicted to the cocaine and looked like they were on their way to overdosing from usage and took them out of their circumstances and then introduced them to Rat Park and within a matter of days they almost universally stopped using the cocaine because the quality of life the quality of their life had improved to the point that the euphoria they felt from the drug was a downgrade from just their daily experience and so Portugal took 
this information and instituted a system where people were not pun they legalized all drugs you people will not be punished for coming forward as users of these drugs they will be provided with they took this information that they got from the experiment and used it to institute a system where they legalized all of the drugs that there was no stigma about using them and no fear of punishment for using them so that people who were addicted could come forward without any fear of reprisal and say hey I got into this I'm in a bad place I need help and uh, provided with facilities that they could go to to come down off of the drugs and provided with uh, other chemical substances that could ease in the uh, what's the word Easily come down. I don't remember the exact word for it, but uh, you know what I mean. And then as part of the system they instituted, they went out of their way to re rehabilitate these people and, and talk to them and try to understand what was happening in their lives to put them in a place where the euphoria from the drug was was more positive than just the experience they had in everyday life. And they they actively tried to improve these people's lives in ways that would change that, like getting them more education and adding their skill sets so that they can have more profitable and interesting jobs and helping them understand what might be wrong in some of their interpersonal relationships that's making them negative or why they can't sustain interpersonal relationships and improving their living conditions and the way they communicate and the way that they think about things to the point that everyday life when they were back out in the general population had become so good that the euphoria they felt from doing the drug was not worth losing the just day-to-day -day happiness they, they encountered in living the way that they were living now. And as a result of this system that they instituted, rates of drug use plummeted from, I th I'd have to look the statistic up again, but I feel like it said at one point more than 40% of the population of Portugal was addicted to some sort of drug. And it, it, it slashed it to under 10%, I believe. Could be even less. Uh, and it's just a, it's a shining example of how what substance abuse really is and how it could be handled in a way that would actually be beneficial to the society as a whole and to the people who are addicted to the substances. Because I think our current system for dealing with that, like I said, is just to lock them up and get them out of the general population. And you might think that having those people locked up and out of view is beneficial to the society, but it's obviously detrimental to the well-being of those people. And whether you like it or not, those are people, those are humans, those are members of our society that we are currently just casting aside and dooming to a life of pretty abject misery because they ended up in a bad spot.
and I just don't think that's right. Okay, well, that'll probably do it for this episode. Uh, there's a lot more things on criminal justice that I'd like to talk about, and I thank you for bearing with me because I am still new with this, and I don't quite have a system for organizing things where the episode flows really well yet. But I'm working on it, and I promise it'll get better the more I record. And, yeah, I'm going to put a link in the description for some contact information for whatever you might need to contact me or the show about. Uh... And I'll probably do, I think the way I'm going to maybe structure these things is that anytime that I have a pause between interviews, like let's say I can't get an interview lined up for two weeks in a row or something like that, I'll pick a topic and I'll record several different episodes analyzing the topic from different perspectives and release those as kind of an interlude between interviews. And so this is my first episode about criminal justice, and expect any time I go at least a week without being able to organize an interview that I will release another episode analyzing this criminal justice topic from a different perspective until I feel like I've really done it justice. And at that point I'll let you know that we're wrapping up this segment of it and that give you an idea for what topic might be next on the docket. So yeah. I appreciate everybody who listens, and everybody think critically. Hey everybody, this is your host Chaz Anderson, and welcome to the Thinking Critically podcast. (laughs) Uh, Tonight I have my first guest, it's my beautiful wife Shani. We are going to talk about childhood, uh, childhood traumas and the things we've learned from it and the insights we've gained from really doing a deep dive into it and trying to figure out well, at least for me, I the way I usually handle it is if I notice a problem that keeps reoccurring in my life that seems kind of self-caused, I'll stop and think about that and really try to break it down to what it is, and I usually end up coming up with a, a uh, trauma or misfortune I faced as a child that seems like it has led me to this behavior. Uh, and we're going to talk about that and the... Uh, the traumas we've faced and how we've dealt with them and the things we've learned from them. And then we're going to get into our own relationship and uh, how this kind of self-analysis has helped us in our relationship and the way we communicate and almost most importantly the way we've decided to raise our kids. So I'm going to start off with a little kind of kick it off with a insight I've had from childhood trauma that I experienced. So when I've always had issues with authority, I never liked people telling me what to do. And I'm the kind of person who, even if I was planning on doing something and then you come over and tell me to do it, now I'm not going to. And if any of you know me from my school days, I'm sure you're probably already well aware of that. But, uh, So that's always been kind of a problem that plagued me. I had big issues with it uh, in school because teachers would tell me, hey, you have to get this done by this date, and just because I didn't feel they should have any authority over me, I would not do it, and my grade suffered heavily from it. Uh, But that wasn't as big of a deal, you know, at least not to me personally. I didn't 
really view it as that big of an impediment for me. Uh, then when I became an adult and had to start working jobs, it became a real issue because I would get into real heated exchanges with my bosses and get kind of a fuck this job attitude anytime that I thought somebody was being disrespectful or trying to order me around when I didn't feel like they should be. And after a while I thought about that and realized that this isn't really a a viable way to move forward as an adult. There's not a whole lot of future in the job market for people who can't take directions from their supervisors. Uh, so I thought about it and I was trying to figure out why I have such a viscerally negative reaction to people trying to tell me what to do and people who are in positions of authority that I don't feel like they deserve. And eventually I came to the understanding that it's not so much a hatred for authority as just a, a real disdain for arbitrary rules, rules that don't seem to have any actual grounding behind them, just do what I say because I said it. And I think that probably comes from my childhood because that was a that was a big thing in our house was my mom would make a rule or tell you to do something and that was the end of story there was no room for negotiation no you couldn't ask well why is that can you explain to me why you think this is an important thing for me to do it was just this is what I want do it because I said so or else and there was a lot of that growing up and the the punishments for not doing it were pretty severe. So once I became old enough that I wasn't really afraid of any kind of punishment from her anymore, I started to develop this fuck you attitude where if you tried to tell me to do something but I didn't actually respect you or understand the reasons why you were telling me to do it, I'm not going to do it just to spite you. And gaining that insight into why I've always been doing that, I think, has gone a long way to help me, I guess, play by the rules, jump through the hoops, so to speak, that you kind of need to in your professional life. And I'm still not a big fan of it, and I still have some pretty immediate negative reactions when it happens, but for the most part, I can just kind of choke them down and move along with my day without too much problem. So that's just a little example from my life of the kind of thing we're talking about. Uh, well, one other quick sidebar into that that I think is relevant and interesting. And it's a way that it's affected, I think, my parenting style is that I, I'm a big believer in that you have to you have to communicate with your kids about the boundaries you're setting. You can't just set boundaries because you know better than them. You have to actually be able to sit down and talk to them about it and explain, look, this is the boundary I'm setting and this is why, and these are some of the things that can happen if you get on the other side of the boundary. And allow room for a little bit of pushback from your kids. They're not always just going to understand and agree with you right off the bat. If, if they still think you're not right, you have to allow for some room for them to push back and talk to you about it and try to negotiate the boundary so that it's still somewhere that they're going to be safe, but it's also somewhere that they're happy with and they're satisfied following. Anyway, uh, that's my little two cents on it, and now I'd like to welcome my wife, Shawnee, into the 
recording. Hello. Uh, do you have any good examples from your life and your childhood where you've had a problem and gained some insight on what might be causing it? What to pick? <laughs> um, well, I have problems with, or I used to have problems with authority too. Um, some of the same reasons, like lack of respect um, for elders or whoever was trying to tell me what to do. Um, and yeah, it was just because I, I did not see them in a good light ever. If someone was trying to make me do something that I didn't want to, it was immediate shutdown for me. So, so that's one um, that I agree with or empathize with you on. Um, another issue, I guess, that I've had to work through is my anger, um, and go to, like, the root of that, which there have been a lot of, like, paths and little side sections of anger that, I don't know, it's just so many things, but the number one thing, of course, is how I grew up. Um, I think it was just the lack of stability in my life, um, where, like, for instance, when I was very, very young, I think, like, when I started kindergarten, you know, the first few months it was totally normal. I'd wake up, have breakfast, and, you know, say bye to my mom, get my backpack, and go. And then after that, it was either a few months into kindergarten or, like, first grade. And all of a sudden, I had to start cooking for myself. I had to get my own breakfast. Mm. I had to... And when I mean cooking, I don't mean turning on the stove at five years old. I mean, like, getting cereal or getting my snacks or making my lunch, like a sandwich. Um... And grabbing my backpack and leaving without a goodbye because she wasn't awake or, you know, sometimes she wouldn't even be there. So I think that that was really the start of the lack of stability, which there was there's a lot of backstory, of course, you know, with her marriage at that point and whatever. Um, and some just really negative effects that it had on her, which in turn had on me i'm gonna pause you right there i just noticed something that she was doing that a lot of people do and i've i the more i think about it the more i kind of take issue with it uh she was kind of retroactively defending her mother for bad decisions she made and there's a i think there's a difference between being understanding to someone's situation and writing off their bad decisions based on con like we really want to go there because I can so for the record uh, <laughs> I can go there with you I think he distracted me uh Okay, so I think that people, I think that in order to really act in the world in the right way, you have to not only give yourself, but everyone else the, 
I think you need to give your I think you need to give your parents and everyone else complete free will and agency in their actions in order to give yourself free will and agency in your actions. So for example, my mom came from a very abusive household and my dad died before I was born and she was left a single mom with me and my sister and before that she was a stay-at-home mom while he was at work so she didn't really have a profitable job or any skills. <clears throat> and for a long time I gave her a pass for the way that she treated me based on that context because she had it really hard so I don't know. Yeah, that's that's the whole thing is now that I think about it I can't even really retrospectively see the logic in doing that. I just, I don't get it. But uh, I used to do it all the time, too. And the reason I think that's a pretty significant issue is because if I am unwilling to give my... If I, if I give my mom excuses and don't make her own the things she did when I was a kid because of how she was raised and the things that happened to her, then how can I give myself or anyone else responsibility for the things we do and the way we treat our kids because of the context and the the childhood traumas and the issues in life? Life is hard for everybody, and that doesn't excuse bad behavior. And, yeah, so I think basically what I'm saying is that a lot of people subconsciously will... And it's not strictly to parents, it's kind of generally whenever people behave badly, they they give them, like, retroactive defenses, and I don't know if sometimes it's just because they don't want to paint that person in a bad light, or because dealing with the reality of the situation is too tough. I think that was the issue for me, is it was just a little bit too difficult to really try to wrestle with the fact that... She, she just didn't really seem to care about me. It was a lot easier for me to just tell myself, well, she loves me, but it's just the way she's just acting like this because of the way she was raised and the things she's gone through. Sorry for cutting you off. If you remember where you were, please I continue. Don't. I okay. literally talked for all of 30 seconds out of this 12 minutes. Oh, whatever. And now it I was forgot not where 30 I was. seconds. Uh, okay, so. Looking back at, we're going to skip over the relationship part just because I think I have a relative to, relevant topic of conversation in terms of child raising. Uh, looking back at the issues you had as a kid and the way that your household was run, what kind of, uh, what kind of insights into how, how you should effectively parent kids do you think you've gained from that? Everything. I mean, I... Give me an example. <laughs> So I have a split family. Um, I am the only, like, one from my mom and my dad. So everyone else is a half-sibling or a step-sibling. Well, that kind of goes in turn of choosing the right partner for having your kids. Yeah. So we'll I, start at the beginning. You'll get no argument out of me on right. that. I think that's a... <clears throat> that is a big thing for me is knowing who I would have wanted to have kids with and being completely sure like we we made sure to talk about everything before we had kids like how we would raise them if we wanted to put them in religion right away um, what kind of schools we wanted to look forward to putting them in if they're going to be in sports like we talked about a lot but also like those are like the fun topics I guess to <laughs> plan for you know like 
but the hard topics we also did talk about like punishments um like timeouts and like when zach started hitting everyone we had to teach him that it hurt so that's when we started hitting his hand and it's not fun at all but i feel like we agreed on that kind of parenting style when it is necessary yeah this is a this is a, a specific topic that i think is really important and i also think it's really important to to really flesh it out not leave a whole lot of gray area right. left in the middle so i'm gonna i'm gonna explain my personal philosophy on it and then when i'm done or if you hear me say something you disagree with or whatever just just jump in and whenever you need to and Cut me off if you think I'm being crazy. Okay. Uh, it wouldn't be a wife and husband yeah. segment if I didn't. Uh, so my personal philosophy with that, like specifically with punishment of kids, I guess. Uh, I do not believe in any kind of physical punishment generally. There are, as far as I can tell, I mean, again, we're still pretty new to this whole pair. At least I'm pretty new to this whole parenting. Shani's got some non-direct experience <laughs> and we might get into that later but uh so in my short amount of time parenting i've noticed that there is a small window in which minimal necessary force can probably be acceptable mm -hmm. <clears throat> and my son happens to be going through that right now it probably doesn't sound great but i promise stay with me here <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh and that is the the kind of time from like one to two, two and a half, three, depending on the kid, when they start really running around and being super active and they're developing their personality and they're kind of learning what's where the right where the boundaries right. are and what boundaries they can push, but they're not yet able to communicate. And that's my son. He's a little bit of a late bloomer talking. And so he'll he'll do certain things that he shouldn't be doing, like, for example, when the hitting thing. I think that probably started coming around because me and him wrestle all the time. We have pretty much since he could start walking. No, but he would hit out of anger. Like, well, if, you, yeah. if you told him no, like, no more cups of milk, he'd walk up and, like, hit your leg. Yeah. Okay, but anyway, so with, with the hitting, that was a tough one for me because, again, I'm... I believe strongly in peaceful parenting. I don't believe really in any kind of physical punishment. Right. But he's at an age where he can't talk yet and he can't really understand what we're saying fully. So I, you, you have to find some way to dissuade that behavior, but he's not at a point linguistically where I can just sit down and talk to him about it and try to explain to him why that's wrong and why we can't do that. Which is really frustrating. Yeah, it's it's terrible. <laughs> so for the time being, uh, we've decided that probably the best way to go about it is if he comes up and hits us or something like that. Some some kind of behavior. Yeah, some kind of behavior that's serious enough it needs correction. Uh, like when he bit you really hard at shop. Yeah, to just if he hits, swat his hand as lightly as you can while still making a point that look this is bad this is this, you shouldn't be doing this yeah like uh, if you if you're hitting your kid and you're leaving marks on your kid you should probably be arrested because that is not teaching your kid a lesson that is you taking your anger out on your kid definitely and this right. plays really well into what we're talking about because yes it does that is 
I think a lot of that stuff is what happens when you have kids, but you haven't done any of this, like, self-reflection and introspection mm -hmm. into it. And you just end up kind of recommitting the sins of your parents. Yeah. Or the reverse side of that that happens to a lot of people is that they realize what their parents did that was wrong. But instead of, like, really delving into themselves to try to solve the problems it left... They just recognize a certain set of behaviors their parents did, say, I'm never doing that, and then run in the opposite direction as fast as they can. But then you end up running into a lot of other problems, like, I know some people, one person in particular, not going to say any names, but uh, he had a really abusive father, and now he has like five or six kids, and he kind of prides himself on the fact that he, he's never done anything like that, he's never been physically abusive to his kids. But the problem is that he was so singularly focused on not hitting his kids that a lot of the rest of parenting kind of fell by the wayside where now they're in their teenage years and growing up and leaving the house and he doesn't really have any kind of connection to them and he was, he never really taught them anything because he was just so focused on whatever happens I can't hit my kids that he wasn't even really present for a lot of it. I want to know who you're talking about. We'll talk about it off the air. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think that's kind of the reason that this is so important. And for me, I think you can weigh in when you'd like, but I think uh, being a good parent is probably the single most important thing you can do as a person if you're going to have kids. Oh, for sure. Because the... Well, I mean, there's just lots of reasons behind it. I think the number one thing for me is that being born is pretty much the one thing that happens to you in your life that you have no control over. you got right. no choice in the matter who your parents were, when you were born, where you were born. You're just there, and your parents are like the warden of your prison, where they just they have complete and total control of you, and you do not get a vote. And so I think that's why it's so important that you treat your kids right. I don't view me as a warden. Well, but you get the metaphor, though. Like, yeah, but it's you too just. Dark. But it's kind of not. If you look at the way that some parents treat their kids, it seems pretty appropriate. Well, I'm not in those some parents. You're right, but that's why it's important. I know. Uh, and it just. I mean, the, the emotional scars you can leave on your kids and the trauma that that's going to leave them with for the rest of their lives and all the problems they're going to face that they wouldn't have if you would have done a better job. And it's just. I don't know. You know, it's a, it's a cliche, but, yeah, children are our future. And the less of them that come out the other side with serious emotional damage, the better the society's going to be. Yeah. Like, I... Yeah. Like, I know someone who has a handful of children, um, and the first... Like, the firstborn took a while to grow and actually become a good person and parent and then the other handful of kids like there there's a, a few of them um were just horrible like they they still have issues which is really really sad like you know drugs um in and out of issues with law enforcement um they're just stuck in depression um and I don't, I don't know what happened, but, like, with the last kid, turned out just fine. So, 
And because I know who you're talking about, I'm going to bounce something off of you, and then I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. Okay. So you said that the the oldest child took a while, but eventually got their shit together. Right. And are doing good now. And I would mostly agree with you, but I think this is the part that a lot of people miss, and this is one of the reasons that sometimes it's not taken as seriously. Because a lot of the times when people come out of dysfunctional households that tend to have a lot of... The children that come out of them have a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. You'll pretty often get one, maybe two out out of the bunch who come out the other side and seem pretty well put together. Like, they they never have trouble holding down a job. They don't really get in trouble with the law. They do well for themselves financially. They have, they have the house and the wife and the kids, and everything seems good. But if you actually really pay attention to, like, the things they do and the things they say, you can tell there's still, there's still some issues there. There's still some damage present, and it's still affecting the way they act in a negative way. It's just not as obvious as doing drugs and being locked up. Okay. What do you think about that? I guess I agree. Just because like, the, I can we both see, know who we're talking yeah. about. Do you like, think I that's a fair it. representation? It is, just because I feel like they haven't worked out all mm-hmm. the issues, but for the most part... Yeah, oh no. There's I mean, complete growth look, from where they were once. Don't and I, like, I pride myself on being one of those people, though. Like, I came out of a really shitty situation, and, like, I don't know how many family members were like, yeah, we we were worried about how, you know, you were going to turn out for a while just because of how you grew up. And it's like, okay, one, you didn't jump in and help yeah. really at any point. Take me out of, you know, whatever. But I don't know. I, I feel like I have... Only a couple issues, and I feel like it just affects our relationship at this point, where I still need, like, a significant amount of time to cool off, which just means, like, a couple hours. It's not, like, a whole day like it used to be eight years ago when we first got together, but it's, I don't know. So I think that, I don't know. I lost my train of thought. But with that being said, I, I'm i probably a little bit biased, but I think we are pretty good examples of people who have come out of dysfunctional <laughs> oh, households. Yeah, no, no, not at all. I'm a straight shooter. Uh, <clears throat> come out of dysfunctional households and ended up yeah. pretty well put together. Yeah, I mean, but we're, it we're 20. It wasn't an accident. No. It's taken a lot of hard work and a lot of intentionality, and that's yeah. the part that I think a lot of people miss out on, is just because somebody looks like they have stuff kind of figured out and they're in a good place doesn't necessarily mean they are, because you can you can still get your life in order in terms of your finances, your career or these kind of things mm-hmm. but like your your emotional well-being and your mental state of mind and those deep scars from childhood trauma mm-hmm. aren't just going to fix themselves because you've put these other parts of your life together it yeah. still takes a lot of work and a lot of intentionality 
in order to kind of get to the bottom of these things and work it out. It's not... I think a lot of people who go through stuff like this, or at least the ones who end up on the better side of the what happens to them spectrum and find some kind of financial success and career stability and stuff like that, I think a lot of the times they end up doing that kind of in place of the emotional work because it it gives them something to focus on so that they don't really have to pay attention to the the other issues that are fermenting underneath the surface because of of the of the trauma that they haven't really dealt with. Mhm. I think that's a good point. Okay. Now I think we're going to end up getting a little bit off of the track of childhood trauma. Well, it'll it'll probably loop back around. Uh, <laughs> So earlier in the conversation, you were talking about how you think one of the really important things that you need to do is try to find a really good partner. Like, try to find somebody who would who you think would really be a good parent to the kids. Mm-hmm. Do you think that... I'm trying to think of a good way to say this that isn't going to get me in trouble with anybody. Uh, do you think that the... The kind of general promiscuity in our culture these days that wasn't really present at the rate it is now is a big problem in that, like, people aren't taking sex and the possible consequences of it as seriously, and so you're ending up with a lot more people having kids when they didn't want to have kids and feeling stuck in relationships they didn't want to be in just by accident of not taking what sex is seriously enough. Okay, so, see, I I view it as a completely different thing for a little bit. Like, there's definitely people who just don't give a shit. Like, we, I think that we can all agree that there's just people confident enough in their pull-out game and yeah but I think that I can see it from like a different perspective just because I was there at one point maybe like maybe someone hypothetically speaking (laughs) (laughs) so someone um Like, let's say, like, a woman is in a relationship where she thinks that she's with the right partner and that she's ready to start a family. But, like, a lot of people, like, some married couples actually will have a child thinking that it'll solve their problems. So that could be another thing where people aren't taking the consequences, which I'm not saying a child is a bad thing. I'm not saying consequence is a bad thing. But they're not taking the They're not taking the responsibility seriously. Yes, the responsibility. That's better, yeah. They're not taking the responsibility seriously enough. They're only focused on themselves. And I feel like those are the people who should not be having a child at that moment. Uh Like, there's no way that anyone could ever tell someone, you can't procreate. It's against human rights. Uh Well, unless you live in China. (laughs) China's on a whole nother level. (laughs) But, like, 
I just, I, I think that people need to think about their baby fever, per se, is what people call it, in a, a different light. Like, when I had baby fever, yeah, yeah, it was bad. Rem- you I remember. remember. Yeah, it was I really remember. bad. Yeah. Like, like, we would get into fights about it, and it took me a while. It was actually around the time, like, a year before we, we tried to have Zach, like, I just stopped one day, and it was because I was working through it in my own head, where I was asking myself, why do I really have this baby fever? Why do I want a kid so bad? And it was because of my depression. Because I thought if I had something that was just full of happiness, I could suck some happiness out. And have it for myself too so i thought that and you do now but it probably wouldn't have worked out as well before right like i thought that a baby would make me happy and that was the only thing that could permanently make me happy which is just not true and i think it was all of my thinking that really saved us from a lot of more like rough fights because we would really get into it and it was it was because of my issues and because I was trying to like convince you this is the right thing to do but I I would have categorized myself as one of those people in that situation to not take the responsibility seriously like I knew how to take care of a kid no problem mm-hmm. I, I took care of all of my siblings like my youngest one is now five so I have been around babies my entire life so I there's no doubt I couldn't have taken care of a child in that situation, but it would not have been the right thing for the kid, maybe, because I don't think I could have been in the right responsible headspace. I would have been questioning why am I not happy still, even after I had the baby, and then I probably could have not even recognized the PT or P, what is it called? Post postpartum postpartum depression. Yeah, I almost called it PTSD. Yeah, I thought you were gonna say PTSD. I was like, I don't know what's happening. No, no, none of that. But um, so yeah, I I think I can just say that because I've been in that place, and not everyone is like that. Like, of course, there's different situations of people taking, I guess, sex for granted. Like, yeah, do your thing for sure. Like, have sex, be safe, whatever. But be safe. Like, don't fuck it up. Partially disagree with you there. Why? Do you think that people should be limited in their sex lives? Like, I don't think that they should be limited by legislative fiat. I don't think that we should be writing laws about who can have sex and when. But I think people should limit themselves in their sexual freedoms. I think... So you I think don't it's... view it as a harmless indulgence? No, absolutely not. Uh, because of the possible responsibility? A lot of different reasons. Number one, because of the possible responsibility outcome of that, and I think part of the reason that that isn't really taken into consideration or taken that seriously anymore is probably because of all of the different birth control options that are available. Where Which you is people can... being more safe. Yeah, well, yes. Nah. I don't know about that. Where you can have sex pretty much with whoever you want, whenever you want, and there is a 
if you're if you're using it properly, a really good chance you're just not going to get pregnant. I don't I don't think safe I don't think that safe sex is the right thing to say because it's safe as in you're probably not going to get pregnant, but I don't necessarily know that it's safe because it's encouraging you to have more sex with more partners because there isn't the possibility What's, there isn't the okay. probability of pregnancy on the backside of it. And this is what I was going to talk about. Well, what is wrong with multiple partners? Why don't... Why do you think that that is an issue? Okay, this is all just speculation. This is all just stuff I... This took a really weird turn in yeah, my whole yeah, parenting thing. Yeah, this is all just stuff that I kind of ramble through my head on. I think... you got to retitle the episode now. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think that... Sex is a really important thing in that it's its main function, other than making children, is to, like, really create a really strong bond between you and your partner. I think that, I think sex is so a... So you think... Sex is a very emotional thing, and especially for women, they're very vulnerable when it's happening. And I think... I think that that's a really sexist thing to say. How? Especially women are... Like, how are we more vulnerable than men? Because you can't physically dominate a man. Oh, in that sense, you're just... I'm saying it's a more... <sighs> okay, this is... Okay, we're gonna go here. Uh... Yeah, we are, because yeah, I'm so definitely. confused as to what you're trying to say right now. Yeah, well, I was kind of getting there, but, uh... Okay. So, I think sex is a really important part of pair bonding with your mate. With your significant other, with your person. And I think that's probably why it's such an... Emotionally exhaustive and emotionally deep thing. When you're actually doing it with your long-term partner okay and i think that some of that stuff is going to tend to disappear the more you do it outside of that context i think some of the okay I think some of the emotional punch, I think some of the uh, effectiveness it has in bonding you to another, a, a single other person, is probably diminished the more sexually expletive you are when you're single. I think that... So you're saying that when... I think that for both men and women, if you are going around... It's going to be super offensive, but I'm doing it anyway... For both men and women, if you are going around whoring yourself out when you're single, I think that is going to have real long-term impacts in your ability to pair bond with whoever you're going to end up with long-term. And I think that it's going to... I think it has a lot of negative effects. I think it has negative emotional effects on you. I think it has negative mental effects on you. I think when you're young and single and you spend a lot of your time hooking up or trying to hook up, you aren't developing yourself as a person and i think this is what happens to a lot of people is that they 
try to just pursue that kind of sexual independence when they're young and single. And so that sexuality becomes a major or the major aspect of their personality. That's how they identify. And that's when people run into like really serious midlife crises and they have trouble staying monogamous in relationships because they don't, they're not well developed as a person. They, they had, they, they aren't good at forming long-term relationships because instead of taking the time and energy to really develop as a person, you were just out doing your thing. Okay, well, it's not like you're out having sex 24-7. You're developing in the hours that you're not. But most people aren't. Most people, most people, okay, even well, if they aren't out trying to have sex all the time, they still aren't developing. They're vegging out on the television or they're at work for eight hours and they come home and they eat dinner and drink six beers and then go to bed. We have a very sad outlook on our generation. That's not our generation. It's just generally. Mm. It's, it's everyone. I think that's a big issue. I, I mean, I... In all of the jobs I've worked to this point, and all of the hundreds of people I've met at them, I've probably met a handful of people who I could tell had actually done work developing their personality. The rest of them just are what they do. Okay. They are their job, or they are this, they... They it. are a mechanic. They, they're not mm -hmm. Steve with a personality and he likes these things and he does this in his free time and he's his, these are his interests and he's reading this book. They're just, I'm Steve, I work at the warehouse and I like this kind of beer. <laughs> and I think... Okay, well how yeah. do you think that this rounds back to... Our parenting discussion? Yes. I actually do have an interesting answer for that. Then answer it. Okay, uh... I think along with, and I'm not saying, obviously I'm not saying that birth control is a bad thing. Birth control is a great thing. It just increases the your level of personal responsibility because there aren't those same consequences that come with right. with sex with random people that there were before. So it, it requires a greater level of personal responsibility on you to handle yourself. And that ties back into what I was going to say, going to talk about. Uh, which is that I think there is a massive shortage of parenting and quality time spent with children because our society has developed in a way that now it's almost mandatory that both parents be working full-time in order to keep the household running. And so you, okay, so that's kind of like the not responsible sex could lead to split relationships to, okay. Which all ties back to this, which is that I, I think a lot of kids aren't learning those lessons about why it's important to not be so promiscuous and learning all of the lessons that typically a parent would teach you because... Both parents are working at least 40 hours a week, and Monday through Friday, they're usually too busy trying to keep up with things around the house to do a lot of parenting. And so that's that's why I have always been insistent that when we have kids, you are going to be a stay-at-home mom, and I will take care of the working, making money side of it, no matter what that required. If I got to work two, three jobs, work eight hours a week, I don't care. I'll take care of that. 
because I'm going to be working either way, and I want you to be home with the kids so that you can actually do the essential functions of parenting, because, well, daycare is an okay option for people who need it. It's not the same. Like, yes, the lady at the daycare place is feeding your children and making sure they use the restroom, but she's not really trying to give her give your kids deep and responsible answers to questions they have, and I understand if your kids at daycare are usually pretty little, but that doesn't mean there isn't a lot of parenting that goes into that. Well, when they're little, it's the most yeah, it's important probably time. the most important time for parenting. It is the most important time. And it's proven. And having I, I one like... adult to eight children or whatever the rule is at daycares. It's three. three whatever. whatever. I just and they're to... not even their kids. So <sighs> I'm sorry, but they're not going to be that focused on making sure that they're doing a great job of parenting your kids. Yeah. And if you're, you and your spouse are working all the time and you're too exhausted and busy and focused on your own lives and your own work and what's going on around the house and things like that to actually stop and take the time to teach your kids these important values, I don't think that then they're going to have the responsibility to do the right thing when they don't have to anymore because of all the birth control. Mm. If you see what I'm saying. Yeah, that we was were... just a very roundabout way Yes, it was, and we were, I was treading through some relatively unsafe waters because that's not the kind of thing a lot of people want to hear about daycare no well about daycare about <laughs> dual income households and how it leads to bad parenting and about how birth control isn't necessarily a good thing it doesn't lead to bad parenting but you can't tell me it leads to just as good parenting as if a good parent was home with them all the well, time we don't know that oh come on what do you mean we don't know that we don't. Look at the last... Okay, and okay, I get that it's it's really easy to romanticize the past, and I'm not doing that. There are a lot of problems with every time period we've ever been through, and Ooh, this no, is... No, 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 hold no. on. This is hands down the best and safest time period there's ever been in world history, and we happen to live in one of the best countries in terms of safety and things like that in world history. But what I'm going to say is that if you look back on the United States for the last 150 years. When George and Donna, my grandparents, were growing up, or, well, George specifically, because he still lived out in the country, and this is kind of on the crux of it. Like, if you lived on a farm 70 years ago when you were a kid, both parents and all your siblings were home all the time, period. You were always together. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're still doing work, you know, your dad's still out in the farm doing things, and your mom's taking care of stuff in the house, and da-da-da-da-da. Everybody's still busy, but they're around. They're around if you need them. They're around if you have questions. And I'm not saying that everyone was a great parent back then. I'm just saying that I think there's something to when the parents are actually physically available to the kids when they need them, the kids are going to end up, I don't know if I want to say more well-adjusted, but just more equipped to handle the responsibilities of being adult being an adult when they get there. Okay. Which so you're okay, just to overview. Your point is a stay-at-home parent is a necessity. My point is that 
children having their parents is better than children not having their parents. And that's basically just the crux of it. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to come and roundhouse kick you in yeah. the face. Get down with your bad self. What can you say about your situation? Specifically. She never worked. Yep. She was home. Yep. She's just a bad person. <laughs> okay, that's not... No, it is. That's, that's not what I was looking for, but... Well, I know that's not what you were looking for, but that's the answer. So there and are... It... <laughs> There's exceptions to every rule. Right. If you have shitty parents, yeah, it's probably better that they're not around than they are. Oops. But if you look at the society as a whole, it's generally better if parents have their children, or if children have their parents than if they don't. I mean, again, my mom is just not great. <laughs> you know? She's, she was always physically present, but she was never emotionally present. And that's, yeah, a, that's an important thing, is that you, you kind of need to be both. Damn, I thought I was gonna get you there. Nope. <laughs> Fucking bulletproof, baby. I'm sure. Ugh. Do you wanna pause this one and make a part two so it's not so long?